and welcome to Bread and Rosaries, a podcast about the UK, Christianity and the left. I'm Ben Molyneux-Heathington and I'm joined, as always, by Adam Spears. Hello, Adam. How are you today? I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Yeah, it always feels weird to ask you how you're doing, despite the fact we've already had like 10 minutes of conversation. Um, well, to be fair, I didn't ask you before because I don't actually care. That's true, actually. That's not, uh, that's not a question that we actually asked. Uh, and joining us to, to keep us separate from fighting uh, is our good friend Johnny. Hello, Johnny. Hello. Very excited to be here. First podcast I've ever done. You are, you are in fact, hosting the podcast officially today uh, because Adam's Wi-Fi is so rubbish. He ran across to your house. Yes. A little peek behind the scenes to the listeners is that you are sat in separate rooms of the same house to record a podcast where we can all actually hear each other. Sat in the same flat. That's true, yeah. <laughs> whilst, the, uh, whilst the dog's out in the hallway saying, I want to come in to both of us, I imagine. Essentially. More so for Adam, because he's more exciting than me. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I think we uh, both your dog and my dog have made appearances on the podcast before, Adam. They're, they're definitely... That's true. And I have never edited out the sound of a dog. Like That's, that's just I a think, nice sound to have in the podcast. Like. It would be very disrespectful to do that, I think. Yeah, well, they are, they're God's creatures as well, aren't they? You know, Absolutely, absolutely. It's true. <laughs> Probably God's favourite creature. Well, they're my favourite creature, so... <laughs> and you are akin in many ways to God, Adam. I was made in, I was made in God's image. Uh, I don't know about you, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, so were you? You specifically were, yes. <laughs> no one else. <laughs> yeah. Johnny, you are joining us today because we're going to talk about the recent, and I say recent advisedly, recent in the history of the church. Yes, very recent. (laughs) Vote of the Methodist Conference to allow same-sex marriage. We started talking about doing this episode six months ago when that was slightly more recent news. Uh, But you are a Methodist minister in training, I believe. Yes, I'm a student presbyter is the sort of official term. So we've got presbyters and deacons in the Methodist church. I had to be very careful not to to out myself as someone who is ignorant of the world outside of Anglicanism there. I was like, there must be a... The thing is, even in the world of Anglicanism, I'm ignorant. So clearly, I just... (laughs) Yeah, so you are uh, in your final year, that's right, isn't it, of of training. Um, Indeed. And so you will be officially a reverend. Terrifyingly (laughs) soon. And you are also in a same-sex partnership. Yes. Well, marriage. Marriage. I Um, I had a moment of, I'm pretty sure you're wearing a wedding ring round your neck and on your finger as well. (laughs) Yes. The one round my neck's uh, an engagement ring. Uh, Ah. For whatever reason, I think it's because it's got an engraving. It irritates my skin. So wear it round my neck instead. Um, I don't know if we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I... Uh, just got my wedding ring tattooed on me, so I have the actual wedding ring hmm. somewhere. Uh, I think, in fact, <laughs> my darling wife has hold of it. Sensible. Has, has, has <laughs> it. Well, I always thought I was going to lose it, so if I tattooed on it, I wouldn't lose it. Uh, yeah. Sadly, I haven't lost it. I just very quickly got too fat to wear it anymore, uh, <laughs> so it no longer fits on my finger. Uh, it's the lockdown effect. <laughs> Uh, I wish that if it hadn't happened several years before lockdown, that would be... Uh... <laughs> yes, so you are obviously uh, someone who can shed some light on both the Methodist Church and the experience of being gay in the Methodist Church. Uh, so we are going to uh, talk a bit about that. 
and uh, I imagine we're going to use it as well, uh, given it's me and Adam, to cast some shade on the current deplorable state of the Church of England. Speaking of, we start, as always, with our segment, What Else is on My Mind Grapes? What else is on my mind, Grapes? It is time to talk about the Lambeth Conference. Uh, Adam, what is the Lambeth Conference? The Lambeth Conference is a conference where... All the bishops from the Anglican Communion come together to talk, mostly talk shit about each other, I think, is is probably uh, the most accurate way of putting it. Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, the the idea is that they're coming to talk about, um, you know, the Anglican Communion, issues that affect the Anglican Communion. It's been a bit of a um, tricky issue in recent years because some of them were postponed or or just put off for a few years not because of covid but because um lots of bishops in different parts of the anglican communion um don't agree with each other on some pretty key things and relevant obviously to today's topic is that there was a particular controversy about uh partners of bishops being invited and not invited so essentially partners of bishops were invited to an event if they were uh, straight relationships, but same-sex partners of bishops were not invited. Uh, this was what two years ago. This happened, and it was a big controversy at the time. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be something similar that crops up this time as well. Yeah, and to to add insult to injury with that, whilst the partners of gay bishops were not invited, um, bishops from Anglican churches that are not part of the communion, um, many of them having split over this issue because they take a more conservative line, were invited. Um, So it's, yeah, sort of rubbing salt in the wounds, really. What I want to talk about is not the Church of England's state on that issue, although we will get to that, but uh, something else that they've done. There's been an email that I have seen that was sent around looking for volunteer stewards for the Lambeth Conference, uh, which is uh, essentially two and a half weeks of stewarding. They will have... Uh, food provided i'm sure we can all guess the quality of that food um there will be accommodation provided it's probably slightly nicer than the food the accommodation uh and there will be and it, it literally refers to it as pocket money a small amount of pocket money provided uh what you may have noticed is what isn't being provided is pay and to add insult to injury they won't even pay travel expenses so the Church of England can spend what fifty billion a year on cathedrals and whatnot, yeah, yeah. but uh, can't afford to pay for a few volunteers, well, a few workers, really. Yes, for a couple of weeks, and especially the state of unemployment in the UK. Well, yeah. All right, Methodist. <laughs> I feel very attacked on behalf of a, as the representative of the Church of England on here. No, you're, I mean you're you're absolutely right. You know, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of of this particular um, thing. I haven't I haven't seen it in detail, but yeah, all, all this basically does is is open up something um, that would be a really interesting um, thing to do, a really good way of participating in the life of, of the church to people who have money. It's sort of no wonder that we have such a, a problem with class in the church. You know that 
there have been positive steps made in the Church of England um, over the years to do with things of social class and, and widening participation, but it's so slow. Um, it's just n- not good enough. And there's more of this kind of thing happening than there is of, of you know, the, the opposite happening, the widening of participation. So, um, yeah, we should be, I think, critical of this um, whilst also kind of acknowledging that there there have been positive steps, I think. I think as well, the lack of travel expenses seem particularly egregious to me mm. because, you know, not only limiting it to people who can afford to work for three to two and a half weeks, yep. you're also really limiting it to people who already live down in the southeast yeah. or people who are really well off and live, you know, in the north or Wales or, you know, wherever else. I also think that the intended audience for this opportunity is probably uh, people who are in the midst of their training because it's a good opportunity to, you know, rub shoulders with the great and the good. But also, we all know that, uh, and we talked about this a little bit on the last episode, that in the Church of England, at the very least, ordinands are not exactly... uh, Well, they're not paid. They're given uh, an amount Mm. to cover their expenses, uh, which is pitiful really uh, particularly compared to you know the fact that you instantly become middle class as soon as you finish your training with your paycheck mm-hmm. you know really it's piling on things you know first of all we treat the uh, people in in training so badly and then we take advantage of that fact by uh, trying to get more free work out of them over their summer break the allure of networking is strong you know especially for those who are and not a problem with it, but who are more career driven and and want to get known by people. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It does take advantage of those aspirations. It's very frustrating when you have this. You know, it, it's a bit like internships. Yeah, it's it's a very similar thing, actually. Similar problems, I'd imagine. Adam, I feel like I pulled away from your segue, uh, but we are indeed segueing to talk about same-sex marriages, or I guess really just queer life in general, and particularly uh, within the Methodist Church. Johnny, as our resident Methodist expert. Well, <laughs> I should I should just say, like, Johnny is possibly the most Catholic Methodist I've ever met. It is very true. I, I even have and occasionally use a rosary. Heresy! Um, <laughs> I know. It's terrible. There are a few of us, and there is a, a society which I forget the name of, Sacramental Methodists or something like that, which I'm not a part of. But uh, yes, but there's some useful resources. Some of us are a bit more like uh, Tractarians rather than a sort of Oxford movement thing. So it's all about show rather than necessarily having the high theology i feel like all about show where you're sat there with your bright blue hair is it probably probably <laughs> suits you i think <laughs> yes yes i feel like you're advocating for a camp methodism here like. oh, absolutely there's something wonderfully <laughs> camp about it and there's some there's something wonderful about all the clothes and drama and everything about it um but i also like the fact that a lot of the clothes are 
non-gendered as well. I think that adds to a sort of queer element to it. Yeah. Especially as a cassock is essentially a dress, but by another name. Johnny, do you want to just give us a little bit of an overview of, I guess, your kind of history in the in the Methodist church and your kind of relationship with it? Sure. So when I was about 16, 15, 16, I was invited. I didn't go to church at the time. I was invited by a couple of friends to start going to the youth group at a Methodist church and then kind of from there got a little bit more involved. Um, and I think I was I was there worshipping, but also sort of involved with the stuff that we did there. Went to uni, didn't really go to church for a few years uh, and then came back uh, and went back to the same church um, I used to go to. It was around then that I sort of started what we have. We have local preachers in the Methodist church, essentially lay preachers. And the reason why it's local is we go around the churches in the area, which is called a circuit, kind of like a parish, kind of not. Felt a call to ministry, whatever shape that means uh, or form that means. And then can we, we have a process called candidating, which is the Methodist equivalent of BAP. But instead of over three days, uh, we do it over a year, yeah. do various things like write a portfolio, which I think is about 6,000 words. Uh, you do a 20-hour placement. You have a circuit meeting that you go to and you're voted through or not. And then a group of circuits is called a district. And so you have your district meeting, which you have to kind of go through, and that's a day. And then... Um, we have uh, our national level, which is called the connection, spelt with an X. That's pretty cool. That's pretty trendy. It is. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty old-fashioned. <laughs> I believe the correct term is it's rad. <laughs> I think that sort of fit, fits it quite nicely. Yeah, and the national level is uh, over 24 hours, and you're poked and probed for the entire time, always being watched. Yeah, and got through that. The Queen's Foundation in Birmingham is the only training college that the Methodist Church currently has. So we all come here and I'm in my third year, which is, you know, all terribly exciting and soon to go off to Norfolk in the summer. And then I'm interested to talk a little bit about your kind of personal experiences of being a queer person in the in the Methodist Church and how that has kind of mm. panned out for you. Jesus weeps for Gaza. He sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food, clean water, decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. Christians for Palestine UK is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but are united in our prayers, hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, where we've been joined by siblings from Sabil Kairos, Pax Christi and a whole range of Christian churches. 
we urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. The Very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, says, I warmly welcome the newly formed group Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. To find details of local actions or to join the Christian bloc at a national march, follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook or email christiansforpalestineuk at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now. Yeah, um, it's definitely been mixed because a lot, I mean, I'm from the southeast, actually from the same place Ben's from, um, and a lot of the churches in the area are very middle class. I mean, a lot of the Methodist church is middle class, not exclusively. The kind of, I guess, the the culture of a lot of middle class people is you don't really say it to your face. Um, so a lot of the interactions I've had that have been negative have been quite um, implicit and occluded. They haven't been obvious, which can be quite hard, particularly as people aren't necessarily, yeah, they're not being blatant about it. But generally speaking, uh, most of the experiences I've had in the Methodist Church have been positive. I have had a couple of occasions where people have been outright homophobic, but I have spoken with those people and usually they apologize and even if we don't meet eye to eye on the issue or topic there's a usually a we come out the other side with some sort of mutual understanding of one another and i think whilst i haven't necessarily convinced them and i i know it's not always about convincing people it's more about helping them see me as a human being rather than a uh, an identity or something that is an obstacle mm. towards God and holiness and that shit. Yeah, and I think it is, you know, I, I think queer people, you know, speaking as a cishet person, mm. uh, I, I think from my observations, there's this really weird balance where queer people have the responsibility or feel they have a responsibility to, I guess, educate people or, mm. you know... Offer some kind of you know defence of queerness, either you know literally defending it, or in terms of their conduct and the way they live their lives, or the way they interact with the church. Um, whilst at the same time, there's this sense of uh, you know, actually, why should I have to defend my humanity to other people? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really difficult line to walk, particularly if you know you are someone who you know loves loves the church you're in <laughs> with all its complexities and flaws, and um, you know wants things to improve, mm. but you know. It's unfair, ultimately, I guess is what I'm saying, isn't it? You know, the, the yes, work that's been asked. Indeed. And I also want to note that I am white and I am male, and that also has a, a adds a different yeah. flavour to it. I probably don't... I get less abuse for being white than I would be if I was a person of colour, I imagine, mm. and from what I've heard from other people. And I think that's, that's in the mix. And I also sound posh. 
I genuinely think that has an impact on how <laughs> I, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. people perceive me in a particular way. You know, I've got blue hair, but then I open my mouth and they're like, oh, this isn't what we expected. Got blue blood as well. <laughs> I do. Yeah, yeah. So noble. There's also an added element of being a, a church leader with inverted commas, which adds a, another layer of essentially privilege of authority onto that. One of the other differences of me being a white gay man the difference to that being a person of colour, say, is that I can, to an extent, hide that identity that offends people, whereas someone, a person of colour, can't. And when they go into that ecclesial space, that church, it's it's blatant. I mean, I know it's not good that I can hide, but at the same time, it keeps me safe Yeah. at times, you know. And certain times, in certain spaces... I won't hold my husband's hand mm. because it's easier, it's safer. And when I use the word safe, actually, in church spaces, I've never experienced any physical violence, but certainly verbal, emotional stuff, using dogma and, you know, all that lovely stuff. It strikes me that there's sort of a um, a parallel there with with what it can be like for, for many neurodivergent people as well, because neurodivergent people almost all mask to some extent, um, or, or certainly a lot of neurodivergent people mask, um, and, and that means that um, we, we try not to be... To, to appear outwardly neurodivergent um, because it would be unsafe or a problem in some sense to, to do that. Um, and it seems like that's probably the best um, uh, kind of parallel I, I can think of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had similar similar thoughts about, you know, obviously there are, there are really key differences there. But I was also thinking about, we know that actually masking for neurodiverse people, you know, it, it can be, it's really damaging. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously some level of it is unavoidable, but constant masking is, you know, is psychologically damaging to neurodiverse people, even when they are out, to use that terminology, as neurodiverse in that space even if they're trying to be a certain way or pretend to be a certain way, even though people might know they are neurodiverse, they're trying to not appear excessively neurodiverse. And and I guess that, you know, that that is kind of what you're describing as well, that, you know, that experience of, you know, most people might be aware that you are gay, that you're married to a man, but there is a difference between them knowing that and them seeing you hold hands or kiss or even just, you know act in a camp manner i don't want to use the phrase kind of pushing it in people's faces because you know none of that is in any way you know would be in any way notable if it was a straight person doing it so but you know what i mean like actually bringing attention to it absolutely that dissonance well that cognitive dissonance that it creates whether you're masking or whether you're uh, a person of color who has a culture that's doesn't you know again inverse commas doesn't fit in it, it's really hard, actually. You have to kind of ring fence and guard a bit of your identity sometimes in order to keep that safety. You want to be able to just live your life rather than have it questioned or commented on or perhaps actually that's why I've got blue hair because it detracts so people comment on that rather than me being gay. Mm. Who knows? The most frustrating part of it, I think, at times is that it's implicit rather than explicit. So it's never spoken about, but it's always there in the background, present. Yeah. 
um, so people are too polite, as it were, to talk about it. I think it's interesting because there's, there's a thing about, um, particularly within conservative Christianity, but I think more broadly in Christianity in the UK, there is there is a certain type of masculinity. Um, and, you know, it's not, you know, American conservative Christianity has a masculinity that is very, or, or at least the uh, stereotype of it is very brashly, hyper-masculine, uh, you know, guns, hunting, you know, whatever you might um, call it, and actually, I think whilst you occasionally come across that in in a British context, um, the kind of hegemonic masculinity within the British Church is is softer, is is camper, um, but is is no less misogynistic necessarily, is is no less unpleasant, uh, but it's yeah. I mean, this is a theme we come back to, isn't it, again and again, that uh, uh, good manners and uh, being softly spoken and not necessarily using slurs uh, doesn't make uh, the underlying reality of what people are doing and being any any less unpleasant. I think it was, was it Mark Driscoll who had that awful thing where he said, I wouldn't want to worship a Jesus who I could beat up. Yeah. Um, and, and that is obviously quite overtly gross. But then... Like, how is that any different, really, to some of the stuff that, say, your Nicky Gumbles and and even Mike Pilavacci's would say, where actually they're they're not overtly saying it. It's the same message, but in the subtext. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't have to say it out loud. You can just imply it. Yeah. And interestingly, um, so today's Holocaust Memorial Day, and I was thinking about this, and... I it's something I've chewed over for a while why um, Europe was before the Second World War really anti-Semitic and then shortly after the Second World War wasn't anti-Semitic or at least trying not to be and it's it's almost like they wanted to go well you know we're not going to be anti-Semitic anymore because that's the right thing but the subtext is actually, we're not going to be anti-Semitic because we're not Nazis and we don't want to be associated with fascism. And there's something about that with the subtext of, uh, around talking about homosexuality and, and LGBT stuff is we're not going to use the same words, but, you know, the subtext is there that actually they're anti. It, it reminds me of Justin Welby and his thing about initially saying the stuff happening in Ghana's bad, you know, making potentially the death penalty for people who are gay and people who are supporting them being imprisoned. And then all of a sudden saying, oh, no, I couldn't possibly say anything towards the bishops because that would be colonialism. What's the subtext there? And it's it's pretty um, 
I was pretty grim that whole saga, and it was very. I don't know. This you see it sometimes where using kind of forms of liberal identity politics to reinforce actually some pretty grossly oppressive stuff. You know, oh, I don't want to be colonial, and that's why I'm not saying anything uh, about the communion that I am technically uh, a figurehead of, even if I'm not in charge of it. officially supporting the death penalty for homosexuality i mean like what it doesn't it doesn't stand up to scrutiny does it like it's not colonialism to say killing gay people is bad no matter what country it's in um it's just yeah as you say it's uh it's a way of using a, a fig leaf cover to pretend it's not just actually i don't want to say anything that might be construed as being in any way pro gay people yes so that has all been very negative, uh, which I think it probably has to be with dealing with issues. But uh, what we actually uh, talked about, uh, kind of having a conversation about, is a bit is actually a bit more positive, um, which was uh, last year's news that um, uh, the Methodist Church in the UK had uh, confirmed that it was allowing uh, same-sex marriage within the Methodist Church. Uh, my understanding is that that was a kind of a formal vote but that was a foregone conclusion after a couple of years of various local votes and work that had gone in um but yeah johnny are you able to kind of enlighten us about a little bit of the process and what kind of the the change that has happened as a result yes so it's really a conversation that's been happening for about 30 years so in the early 90s started talking the methodist church started talking uh, uh about same sex stuff basically and how that works in terms of things like ministry or um being a steward which is a bit like a church warden but not as many legal responsibilities and being involved in the church in many other ways and it's kind of slowly built up slowly built up and i remember actually when i started going to methodist church when i was about 15 16 those conversations were in in, in the background even then and a few years ago there was uh, essentially a sort of committee that got together and were wrestling and tussling with same sex marriage but it was also other things to do with uh, relationships and human sexuality it was thinking about um, what a good relationship is. It was talking about cohabitation and and all those sorts of things. But of course, because homosexuality or rather same-sex marriage is kind of at the forefront for people, um, it's the sexy topic of the time, Um, people were focusing on that it did get delayed by a year because of COVID. So it was meant to be sorted in sort of 2020. But in some ways, it was good that people had the extra year to digest it and process and think about it. The Birmingham district, I was on the Senate when people were voting for it. And interestingly, so they had scheduled pretty much half the day for this thing. But when it came to discussing and then voting on each of the resolutions, it was really quick. No one really discussed it all that much. It just went to the vote with an overwhelming majority for each one. Uh, And it almost felt, certainly in the Birmingham district, it wasn't the same throughout the connection, but certainly in the Birmingham district, almost like, you know, 
let's let's sort this out now. We've spoken about it enough. Let's move on. And then it came to the conference, which is a bit like General Synod, uh, where essentially you have representatives from all of the connection, all voting and, and well, discussing and voting together on various things. And there was some discussion. Generally speaking, it felt overwhelmingly positive, even from people who were not in favour of same-sex stuff. And it was a pretty strong... I was, I was surprised, actually, at how much of a majority it was voting in for same-sex marriage. Yeah, I remember reading that it was an overwhelming majority, really. Mm. Um, I didn't know if that was because it felt like, having gone round all the different kind of local synods, that that was more of a formality of a vote for already a done deal, or whether it was yeah, a bit more of a surprise that it was so overwhelming majority. I think people knew that it was going to be going through. You know, chances are it was going to go through, as it were. But I think it was just the, the, the sheer volume um, of people who voted in favour. But interestingly, the way our district synods worked was it was an indicative vote. So it wasn't any, didn't actually have any weight over that final vote. Um, it was more indicative to kind of get a, a feel of where people were at because each church council would have discussed it, the circuit would have discussed it, and then obviously go to Synod, and that would hopefully give a better picture of what was going on. Yeah, a really good, overwhelming majority. And what's left now is for individual church councils, the decision is that individual church councils will vote on whether they will do same-sex marriages or not, and it has to be a majority. The Tricky thing is, I don't think it has to be an overwhelming majority. I think it's just more than 50%, which is tricky when it's really close and it leaves the other half going, oh, what about our views? You know, but that's probably for another time. Yes, I can't think of a, uh, a situation that you could draw a comparison to a close vote where everyone feels upset uh, if the others win. Indeed. Nothing, nothing comes to mind on a national level. Not at all. What what is your? I mean, obviously your your one person, but it, it, what is the impression you're getting in terms of how widely the opportunity to perform same sex marriages will be taken up within the Methodist Church? From what I hear, because I'm a, dignity and worth is one of the kind of groups in the Methodist Church that has been a proponent for this, among others, and sort of get updates on that saying you know so and so has voted for this or so and so has voted against this and a lot of people are voting for it something that i i picked up on the uh reports about the methodists conference was that they also voted to recognize accept and celebrate the love and commitment of unmarried cohabiting couples uh, which i thought was really really good filth yeah sharp adam <laughs> it was something that we talked about in our purity culture episode that we did near the end about this idea of for lack of a term a kind of queer form of purity culture and actually you know the idea of are we simply asking lgbtq plus people to you know you can have your slightly weird partner choice but ultimately you want you to look as much like a straight relationship as you possibly can even whilst you're with the uh, less than ideal partner or whatever it might be you know that kind of sense that will allow you to be a little bit queer but not really queer and I thought it was really positive actually you know and obviously it's good for 
you know, for straight couples and there's a money element to uh, weddings, as uh, I'm sure you know as well as I do, are bloody expensive. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I thought that was a really positive move as well, you know, but particularly for the recognition that actually for a variety of reasons, uh, not all queer people are going to want to get married. Indeed. What's also really interesting about it is certainly from uh, a kind of, I suppose, a doctrine perspective, saying that people can cohabit and be in sexual relationships and romantic relationships, I think is bigger than saying you can have same-sex marriage. To be a bit nerdy with doctrine for a moment, uh, Methodists kind of follow uh, Armenianism. So Jacobus um, Arminus. Jacob Arminius. That's the one. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things he believed, which has followed into uh, Methodist doctrine, is uh, the total depravity of humanity, which is a particular interpretation of original sin coming from Augustine and then Aquinas and so on. And one of the things Augustine says about marriage, you know, uh, and sin is that marriage is a way of kind of obeying sin, essentially, particularly when it comes to things like lust and all that stuff. And it's really interesting to move, essentially, for the church to say, well, we don't need that anymore to, uh, you know, obey what the effects of sin. We can just have this cohabiting thing. And that's really interesting to move away from a model where marriage was the ideal. Well, actually, before then, if you were essentially celibate, that's the ideal. And if you can't do that, marry. But now we're saying, oh, you don't need to marry. You can just don't, don't worry about that. The other really interesting thing, which I'm sure will get ironed out by our Faith and Order Committee, is the fact that the cohabiting thing didn't say two people. Mm. So there is potential for a conversation about polyamory, which I don't think the church is ready to have. <laughs> but it's, 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 you know, talking about queer sexualities, that's, yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it has to be. I mean, we talk about this in the the purity culture episode as well a little bit. Is actually, if you're willing to embrace uh, queerness and all its God-given glory, then whilst obviously not all queer people are polyamorous, there is a history and a continuing place for polyamory um, as accepted and normalised within queer communities. Mm. So yeah, I think that does sound a classic case of. Uh, the people who maybe drafted that hadn't even considered the concept of polyamory as being something. But uh, now that door is open, I very much hope it stays uh, at least ajar. Yeah. I I was wondering, obviously, you know, there has been a long process for the Methodist Church, as you described. But it seems to me, as, as an outside observer, that the Methodist Church has been able to tie itself in less knots than the Church of England. Um, I think partially that's to do with the Church of England's uh, place in terms of the Anglican Communion worldwide, and both the Rowan Williams and Welby were particularly um, 
taken with the idea of having to kind of keep everyone happy worldwide. But I was wondering if kind of you felt there was something about Methodism or something about the Methodist Church or, or more than one thing potentially that that made that conversation, if not easy, then maybe easier than the Church of England. I think one of the main things might be that we're not as big a church. Mm. So when you said about the Anglican Communion being worldwide, yeah, the Methodist Church in Britain is Northern Ireland, Scotland, England, Wales, and the Channel Islands, and Malta. I think that makes it easier because there are closer, I guess, cultural understandings, which which does make it probably easier because if you've got one culture or at least, you know, uh, an overarching culture that has been moving along with a particular topic, there's going to be at least similar understandings going along that, perhaps. I also think not being an established church might actually help because there are all sorts of procedures and things that certainly the Church of England would have to go through in order to change. I think there's something as well about, you know, not just the established church in terms of the structures of it, but in terms of, you know, the joke is uh, you can be a member of the Church of England, but don't believe in God because you'll stand up like a sore thumb, right? You know, and, and although that I think is perhaps unfair, there is something about if you aren't someone with reactionary politics who uh, who doesn't really maybe have much in the way of kind of real spirituality or religious sentiment, but just review views religion and Christianity, obviously specifically as part of the, the right way of doing things. The church of England is, you know, even if it's not somewhere you even attend, it's certainly somewhere that you would identify with uh, in a way that I don't think those people kind of really care about Methodism, <laughs> if that's a fair, yeah. um, which is definitely a plus for Methodism. Mm. <laughs> it sounds sounds almost like you're talking about uh, our old friend Andrea Minicello-Williams. No, sadly, I do think she does uh, believe in God. Probably a very particular conception of God, though. Like, Yes, maybe not the same one as the rest <laughs> of us, but um, she does, she does, she had a few things to say, I believe, uh, in response to this news. She d- she was not welcoming towards it, is, th- is that right? What? Shocker! <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who haven't uh, come across uh, Andrea Minicello-Williams before, she is the head of a uh, organisation called Christian Concern. We did a whole episode about them. Uh, we weren't fans. Organisation is putting it very kindly. <laughs> yes, a, a, uh, a, an active hate group. Yes, yes. Uh, um, so I think that the the academic phrase is um, stochastic terrorism, isn't it? Um. <laughs> that sounds. I have no idea what that means, but I like it a lot. <laughs> yeah, Google it. Google it. It's all good fun. Um, yeah, I I wanted to ask if I can come in here. If that's right. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right, I'll just mute myself then. Bye. Yeah. Good. <laughs> um yeah, I wanted to ask a little bit about that because obviously a lot of the articles that that came out about the Methodist Church's position 
pretty quickly just centered it around the Church of England <laughs> and all the all the responses that came out from there with you know um the the familiar names Paul Bayes bishop of Liverpool sort of saying it's good um because he's like one of only two bishops or something who's like calling for um for for equal marriage and then of course Jane Ozan saying it's good as well and then yeah the opposite the opposite being Andrea Minicello Williams all the all the same names crop up with things like this. It almost does read like they've copied and pasted the story from the last time. Yeah. Same sex marriage and the Church of England. Like the the quotes are the same. The, yeah. The lines are the same. The whole of that bit of the story is yeah, copy and paste the same. I mean, why not? You know, why 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 actually do some journalism when you can you know what they're going to say? <laughs> um, but yeah, I wanted to ask a little bit about that because you know Ben and I being. Um, technically anglicans uh, bad anglicans but anglicans nonetheless we we have a uh, a particular interest in bringing the church of england in that same direction and and i wanted to ask about how the methodist church dealt with people who weren't there yet who who did maybe vote um the the other way um you know what 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 did that look like and then sort of on on top of that as well I wanted to to ask about what you think the Church of England and I guess other churches as well could learn from that process. Well, I don't know whether the it, it was always done in the best way uh, or even achieved, actually. And I can only really say from my experience with any real clarity of what I observed. But one of the aims was to enable people to listen to each other. So there was this constant reinforcing of saying you know this is about our individual beliefs and trying to have a conversation about it reinforcing things like when you say your belief about something you might say i believe this or my opinion is this or i think the bible says this rather than saying the bible clearly says you know i think tools like that are actually really useful for enabling people to essentially be assertive i mean that's what it is really isn't it it's asserting one another rather than being aggressive about it and saying you're a twat shut up i was thinking that I, I, it doesn't matter what the framework is i'm probably going to end up saying oh you're a twat shut up <laughs> and that's why i don't get invited to these sorts of conversations <laughs> the aim was to kind of try and get all the different views to have mutual respect however some of the conversations i was involved with people who kind of didn't necessarily have a problem with same-sex stuff, but had a problem with same-sex marriage, um, didn't they they felt like it was gonna go through anyway, regardless of what they thought. And it was the general flavour of the time was that it was gonna go through regardless. Uh so there are quite a few people who are put out. However, I do think that there is a big part of all of this that's to do with exposure. So I've, I've got some friends who were very against it, but seeing Seb and me, my, my husband and me, has changed their opinion on it. The previous church that we were at before we came to Birmingham had a number of members who wouldn't necessarily have been in favour of it, but they actually said that when they, when they did vote for this, they actually said, well, because of Seb and Johnny, we're, we've seen, you know, our minds have been changed. We're in favour of it. 
but that is a story that we've we've seen like i've certainly seen you know other people you know have, have similar experiences people i know quite well who have you know changed their minds because they're going well actually here is a you know an openly queer person in front of me who is so clearly living a you know a, a a Christian life, whatever that <laughs> looks like. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it is that sense that actually theological arguments are only going to never get you so far. And I think a lot of the time they act more as an excuse for people to, you know, they, people are just looking for that final excuse to say, actually, I, I am allowed to support my friends in this. Yeah. And there was a quite a considerable push to actually talk about the lived experiences of people of using those stories not only of people who are in same-sex relationships but also of people who struggle with the issue or are against it and that i think also helped it, it kind of made it from this nebulous thing to something that's quite concrete and real so people could relate to it i think one of the trickiest things that i'm sort of struggling to to get my head around it you know in in relation to the church of england is that you know we've we've had similar processes going on for a long time you know we've had the shared conversations that you know i knew i I know people who participated in those and came out of them thinking that they had had you know they've been really positive they've been listened to and whatever but then at the end of the day what came from it after that was was nothing and it was like people actually hadn't listened to them at all and i i really struggled to see a way around that so it's like yeah i i, I think trying to get to this pl- point of mutual understanding and and respect is is really important but it almost feels like methodist church has somehow managed to get to that place um and and the church of england almost refuses to or one let's be honest one side or elements from one side of the Church of England refuse to. And I, I just can't see a way around that. I think the Church of England uses shared conversations, living in love and faith, in the same way the government uses official inquiries. It's a whitewash. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's an attempt to kick the can down the road. You know, those shared conversations and living in love and faith both really strongly feel like they're not opportunities really to have a conversation. They're delaying tactics. Uh, whereas, whilst I'm sure there are flaws in what you've described in that, you know, Methodist process, from what you said, it felt like there was a conversation in which people were listened to with the opportunity that at the end of it, some change might have come out of it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I guess it's where, essentially where power is located, isn't it? Yeah. In the Methodist Church, one of the reasons why I like it, and it's far from perfect, but generally speaking, there is a greater spread of who has power. Mm. People who aren't ordained can still hold some of the you know, real weight in the church, essentially, rather than having someone who has to be ordained. I mean, there are still positions that we do have where it has to be you know, ordained people, but you can have as much sway in it as anyone else. I think you've got that totally wrong about the Church of England. We have a lot of spread of power. There's one old might man and there's the literal queen. We've spread the power between those two people. <laughs> what, what's the issue? Like... So it's almost an oligarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, almost might be generous. <laughs> I, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's really interesting, actually, because, of course, like I was saying earlier, the Church of England has this uh, structure, um, ha- has the Synod, which has three chambers, the House of Laity, the House of Clergy, and the House of Bishops. And, of course, that's supposed to make it more democratic. And, and in, you know, it 
kind of does certainly compared to where it was before but the the problem with it of course is you know it's similar to what you were saying at the start ben of how the only people who really have access to certain things are those who already have power who already have wealth so even if it's an elected position that's open to the laity the people who who tend to get those positions overwhelmingly are the same kinds of people who have always held them um, and that's why the church of england can could sort of appear structurally to some extent to to be a democratic institution but actually, ultimately, nothing ever changes because the democracy is is as hampered, let's face it, partly by the fact that it's an established church. It's the Church of England. You know, if you if you're struggling to sort of think about how how power is spread in the, in the Church of England, a, a really good way to to look at that would be to look at um, the church commissioners. You know, who, who sits on the church? Um, commissioners who are great and should continue paying my rent adam (laughs) end of sentence well you know also (laughs) you know let's be honest i'm training to be a priest in the church of england as well so like you know i love the church of england right um i wouldn't be in it if i didn't but ultimately there are certain things about it that i that i want to change and one of them is is the makeup and the direction of the church of england just look at who sits on the church of england um the church commissioners it's incredible. There are 33 positions. Two of them are the two archbishops. Three of them are the estates commissioners that are appointed by, I think the, the first church estates commissioner is appointed by the queen. The second one's appointed by the queen. And the third is uh, appointed, I think, by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Then you've got four bishops, two deans elected by deans, three clergy people elected by the house of clergy four lay people from the house of laity then three members nominated by the crown right so you know we've already had two three members by the archbishops and then like loads of them are basically from the sitting government of the day so you got boris johnson jacob rees mogg robert buckland who's the the lord high chancellor all like loads of these these people so the vast majority of these roles are occupied by people who, yes, some of them are elected from within particular bodies within the Church of England, but almost unanimously, every single one of these roles is occupied by someone who has an obscene amount of power and is appointed for a very, not just undemocratic, but an anti-democratic institution. And, you know, if you can't see the problems with that and how that would lead to entrenched power, then I, I, I don't know what to say. Just to kind of, as we're you know starting to run out of time a little bit, and we're probably all getting quite hungry, I wanted to. Um, I think somewhat ironically, given that we've just spent the last however long talking about the Church of England, just touch on you know the Church of England does tend to suck the oxygen out of any conversation about Christianity in this country. I thought you were just going to you know, stop yeah. at suck there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could have done. Maybe I should have done. And I'm interested. You know, as Adam commented on earlier, you know this announcement of 
the Methodist Church has done this really good thing very quickly became about the Church of England, even in, you know, in, in both the Guardian and the BBC articles that we were pulling from. That is the centre point of it is, is actually, oh, what does this mean for the Church of England? Um, and, and, you know, Anglican, Adam and I are both Anglicans and do end up kind of coming back to the Church of England a lot. But I think we are both quite aware of uh, the way that that is overemphasized, you know. And I've just wondered, you know, from the perspective of someone who is a, is a Methodist, how how you see the Church of England in the way that, you know, your church is only seen as a reflection of what might be happening in the Church of England. I think there are two aspects to that. One is we can have a chip on our shoulder and say, well, what about us? Why is it always them? Which I think, you know, it does happen and it is felt certainly by me sometimes and, and others. But there's the other aspect of, well, we can do things that you can't. So there's always a bit of smugness <laughs> yeah. that goes with that. But also there's that freedom. In some ways, perhaps what Adam's doing, but from within, but we're outside of being that prophetic voice, perhaps, of saying change needs to happen. And it is easier being a smaller organisation to do that because you don't have as many stakeholders with all the different invested interests that kind of push and pull and all the different tensions that arise and friction that come out of it. I think in some ways our heritage as a church, um, as, as some other churches, you know, we've got strong roots in things like trade unions yeah. and, and being very proactive for helping people. I'm not saying the Church of England doesn't, but I think because of that historic... Yeah, well, I mean, obviously that's, you know, the the, the phrase that gets bandied around, the little pithy phrase in terms of kind of socialism in this country in some of its ways is more Methodism than Marxism, right? Mm. And I'm definitely more Marxist than Methodist. I hate that phrase so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll, we're basically going to do a whole episode about that yeah. at some point. But... um that is, you know, although obviously there's a negative extent to which it's used as a kind of, you know, playoff against Marxism, there's this recognition that Methodism is, you know, in terms of radical politics in this country, is really central to that, you know, to that you can't tell the story of the trade union movement without talking about Methodism to an extent. Mm. And, you know, whereas the Church of England's history and to an extent still the present, or the less so, I hope, is that more kind of Tory paternalism, you know? The poor's need looking after by us, mm. not we need to be part of that, you know, uplifting as a community. So, yeah, once this call ends, I'm going to call my wife and ask if she fancies being a Methodist and said, uh, <laughs> give up the whole being an Anglican priest going, thing. Well, you're going the, yeah. the, the opposite <laughs> way to Maggie Thatcher, so that's probably a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And... One of the things that I want to do, I think, in the Methodist Church is bring more Marxism, actually, into it. Um, <laughs> yes, we, we are yeah. fully in support of that. Absolutely. And I think things like liberation theology will certainly help with that. Fortunately, it, it does seem to be becoming popular, but whether it's going to be a liberation theology light for the middle class yes. is another matter. It's certainly an ever-present danger, isn't it? That there's a, yeah, obviously slightly different, but we talked about this with 
some of the Black Lives Matter stuff mm. and the way that quickly went from radical demands for police abolition to we're kneeling because saying the N-word is bad. Uh, and obviously, yes, <laughs> using the N-word is bad, but, you know, actually there was this kind of sanitization mm-hmm. process that goes on um, and you can definitely see that happening with, with liberation theology at times. Yeah, uh, We are fully in support of bringing more Marxism to Methodism. Absolutely. And almost anywhere, really. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and queer theology follows that same route of, of yes. having that Marxist ground. Yeah, absolutely. Johnny, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. We have learnt a lot. Apparently there are churches outside of the Church of England, which is a big learning point for us. But no, it's it's been really interesting, and you are always welcome to stop by again and talk to us a bit more about Marxism and Methodism at some point. You can find the podcast in all the usual podcasty places. We are on Twitter at bread underscore rosaries, we're on Facebook at bread and rosaries, and you can email us breadandrosaries at gmail.com. Uh, we do very much like to hear people's feedback uh, and thoughts and questions or anything else you might have. Adam, where in the world can people find you? Uh, you can find me uh, most places at commie, X-I-A-N. Johnny, do you have anything you'd like to plug before you go? No, I try and avoid social media. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good decision. Uh, I wish I had the self-control to do the same. In that case, Johnny, you could, what, what outro song do you want put you on the spot? Oh, I'll have to think about that. What, what's the gayest Methodist song? That's the question. <laughs> oh, don't know. How about having something like Dancing Queen, like proper camp? Yeah, that, that, that works for me. Yeah. I think we can get behind <laughs> that. So we did that to someone once and they requested Graham Kendrick, so they're permanently banned. <laughs> right, thank you very much, everyone. Uh, we'll see you next see time. See you later.